one of the most wonderful truths found in the Word of God is that no true believer in Christ will ever lose their salvation. That is a fantastic truth. The New Testament is abundantly clear on this. Abundantly. For example, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. I mean, Jesus couldn't be any clearer. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. As I said, could not be clearer. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28, but going to verse 30. Paul said, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, it means those he ordained, elected to be saved. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And watch this. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And then Paul says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning that our salvation is so secure, as far as God is concerned, we're glorified. We haven't experienced that yet. In time and in space, it hasn't happened yet, but God says it's as good as if it already happened. We've been glorified in his mind. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, Paul wrote, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, folks, these are just a sampling of the many statements found in the New Testament that affirm that we will never lose our salvation. However, Though we cannot lose our salvation, we can certainly lose through disobedience our rewards as well as our usefulness to the Lord, being used by Him. And that's precisely the point that the Apostle Paul has been making with the Corinthians in chapter 10 of his first letter to them as he teaches them that liberty issues are potentially dangerous because though a liberty issue like in their case of eating food sacrificed to an idol, while it's certainly permissible, they could do that. Scripture doesn't say that it's forbidden. If they are not careful, they can take this liberty issue too far so that they cross the line from what is permissible and move into the category of what is sinful, in this case, the sin of idolatry. Now, this is what we saw last week in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Having ended chapter 9 by telling the Corinthians of his own concern about being disqualified from being useful to God due to a lack of discipline, personal discipline in his life. In the opening verses of chapter 10, the Apostle Paul gave the Corinthians a history lesson about how ancient Israel, though blessed, greatly blessed, and greatly privileged by God, they failed to discipline, they failed to curb their fleshly desires. And Paul's purpose in doing this is very clearly spelled out in verse 6 of chapter 10. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they, meaning the Israelites, also craved. So Paul used Israel's failure to teach the Corinthians that they should curb their fleshly appetites and not crave things because if they craved evil things like the Israelites did, then they will certainly fall into the same sins that the Israelites fell into. 
And then Paul moves on to actually identify and mention four specific sins that Israel fell into. And we examined these last night. I'll just mention them now. Now, verse 7 speaks of the sin of idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Secondly, the sin of sexual immorality. Verse 8. Or let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. The third sin, the sin of testing or trying God. Verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and they were destroyed by the serpents. And then finally, the fourth sin that Paul mentions is the sin of grumbling or complaining against God. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So, having made his first point concerning the danger of liberty issues, which is that though greatly privileged, the Israelites fell into sin. And then having made his second point in which he identified the four sins where Israel fell and what they fell into, Paul now proceeds to give us his third point about the danger of liberty issues, which is that we, we can easily follow the downward path of the Israelites into sin if we are not careful. That downward spiral we can fall into following their path if we're not careful. So we break in at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now with these words, Paul begins, note this, he begins to apply, to apply to the the lives of the Corinthians as well as us and all New Testament readers, what he's just written concerning the Israelites because he wants us to understand how relevant all of this is to us and what we ought to do with this information. So this is about application. And in light of this being his purpose, notice the first thing that Paul says is that now these things happen to them as an example. And what the apostle means by this is that the things that he has just written about concerning Israel's failures to curb their sinful desires are meant to be lessons for us. They're intended by God to be examples, negative examples for us. In other words, we are to learn from these ancient Jewish people. We are to take note not only of the facts about their sins, but also concerning why they sinned. What led them down this road, this path to sin, so that we keep ourselves from following their downward slide. And these lessons are so important for us to learn that they were actually written down for us. They were not just passed on verbally. They were written down for us in the inspired, inerrant scriptures. That's precisely what Paul says in the second part of verse 11. And were written for our instruction. In other words, God included the stories of the Jewish people in the Old Testament for our benefit. See, these Old Testament stories are not simply historical in nature. They certainly are, and they're historically accurate, but they're not simply a history lesson. They're theological in nature as well, meaning that they have a theological message. They have a theological meaning. They communicate a moral point, a moral lesson. And in the case of the sins that Israel fell into during their... 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Paul says they were written for our instruction. 
Now listen closely because the word instruction means more than simply teaching. It means more than teaching. The Greek word that Paul uses here means an admonition. An admonition is when you place something into the mind. But it carries with it the thought of warning someone for the purpose of trying to convince them to change their behavior. You put something into their mind as a warning. Change your behavior or else face God's judgment, his discipline. See, this is why the Old Testament scriptures are so important. It should never be neglected in your reading, in my reading, should never be neglected in our studying. It shouldn't be that we're so focused on the New Testament we forget the Old Testament. Why? Because the things that are written in the Old Testament, Paul says, are written for our benefit. Not only are there valuable truths in the Old Testament about doctrines such as God's sovereignty, it's all over the Old Testament, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, the importance of obedience to God, His mercy, His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His goodness, His compassion, the severity of His judgments. They're all there in the Old Testament and so much more. But there are so many significant lessons about the sinful failures of the people of God that Paul says serve as admonitions to us. We are to learn from their failures. So yes, we learn doctrine, but we also learn from the failures of Old Testament characters. See, while we don't believe at all that the church is Israel, the church in Israel distinct, we don't believe that, that the church has replaced Israel. The struggles, though, that the Jewish people had in their day, they are the very same struggles that we as God's people face today. We may live in a different world. We certainly live in a different culture. But human nature never changes. And therefore, the spiritual battles that Old Testament saints face, we face today as well. Here's the way Bible teacher Ray Stedman, he explained the similarities between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. He said, the stories of the Old Testament symbolize our own spiritual struggles. The enemies that the Israelites faced are the enemies we face. The principalities and powers of darkness that seek to destroy us and to disqualify us. The same enemies that seduced ancient Israel still attack you and me. So, when you read, for example, about the patriarch Abraham, don't simply focus on the history of Abraham, but learn also from his obedience but also from his disobedience. There were a number of times that Abraham disobeyed. He compromised. He, he lied when he failed to trust God. He said that Sarah was his sister rather than his wife because he feared that he would die. And yet God had made promises to him. It was a complete failure on Abraham's part. The same thing with taking Hagar. It was a complete failure on Abraham's part. So learn from those things. What led him to do that. You read about David falling into sexual sin with Bathsheba. Well, learn from that. Why did that happen? There's a downward spiral in David's life. Learn from that. Learn from David's failures as a father. He was a terrible father, a horrible father. Learn from King Saul's failure to obey God so that it was just blatant disobedience on his part. Learn from Solomon's failure. You learn from these Old Testament characters their failures so that by God's grace you don't repeat their failures. This is how you have to read the Old Testament with a view 
of learning the timeless principles and then how they apply to you. Regardless of the fact that you live in a different age, a different world, you are thousands of years removed from the ancient people who lived during Old Testament times. And Paul even acknowledges that. He acknowledges the fact that we are people who live in a different era. Notice how the apostle ends verse 11. He says these things apply to us even though we are living in a different era. This is him identifying us. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, what Paul means by this, note this, is that from the time that Jesus came into this world, the incarnation, it was over 2,000 years ago, the Messiah has come. Until now, the present day that we are living in, are considered the last days before the establishment of God's messianic kingdom, that millennial kingdom on earth. So we are presently living in the last days. The last days have been for 2,000 years. We are in the last days since Messiah came, even though we don't know how close we are to Christ's return. But the point that Paul is making in telling us that we are living in the last days is to make sure that we understand that though these truths that we are learning are from ancient Israelites, they are still applicable and relevant for us, regardless of the time period that we are living in. They still apply. And having said this, Paul now proceeds to tell us how exactly these truths from ancient times and ancient people that he's already told us about, how exactly do they apply to us? What's the point that he's making? Pretty much everything he's told us leads up to this verse, verse 12. Therefore, And the word therefore is there for a reason. He's saying, now based on what I've told you, therefore I am making this point of application. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And we know that Paul has been telling the Corinthians about the sinful failures of the ancient Israelites as a warning to them. But now with these words, we see exactly what that warning is. We see where he's been going. We see his point. The warning is that if anyone reading his words thinks that he stands, what does that mean? It means that he's standing firm in his relationship with the Lord. He's walking in obedience to Christ. He thinks he's strong enough spiritually to handle any temptation. He thinks he's in good standing. He thinks he's tough. He's battle-tested. And Paul says, if that's what you think, then take heed, meaning watch yourself, be careful, because you are in danger with that attitude of giving into temptation and then falling into sin. You see, folks, what Paul is warning each of us to do is to guard our hearts from letting our pride deceive us into thinking that we are just too strong in the Lord to fall into sin. He's telling us, that the danger that comes with any liberty issue is overconfidence. Overconfidence in our ability to practice these liberty issues without going too far in our liberty so that we do cross the line and then we fall into sin. That's the danger of the liberty issues. In and of themselves, they're not dangerous, but they are potentially dangerous because of our heart's attitude. It can easily happen, easily happen, because there is a tendency with all of us to let our pride 
mislead us into thinking it just won't happen to me. I'm too strong in the Lord. I'm different from the Israelites. I know a lot more than they do. I'm, I'm too mature. I have too much Bible knowledge to give in to those sins. I know doctrine. I've had spiritual experiences. I've grown in the Lord. I can't possibly fall into the sin of idolatry, immorality, testing God, complaining, or any other sin that a liberty issue can lead to. Yes, it happened to them, but I know it won't happen to me because I'm too spiritual to let this happen to me. But that's exactly the attitude that leads to these sins. And that's what Paul is saying. It is the attitude of simply being overconfident. It's putting too much stock in your own ability to resist temptation. Of being too sure of yourself that you can successfully handle any solicitation of sin that Satan throws at you. You see, all that Paul is doing is reiterating a timeless truth taught in Scripture found in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He's just using different words. The Christian who stumbles and falls into sin is the Christian who, due to his pride, has put too much confidence in his own ability to handle temptation. And as a result, when temptation does come, he's not leaning on the Lord. He's not seen in his own life the need to protect himself with the full armor that God has provided in Ephesians chapter 6. He's not spent time in the Word like he should. He's not been in prayer like he should. He's just not leaning on the Lord. And so he goes into the battle very vulnerable. And inevitably... He falls. Now there are many examples found in scripture of people who in their pride put too much confidence in themselves to resist temptation to sin. But I think the classic example of a Christian who fell into sin because he was overly confident in himself and his ability to stand up to temptation is none other than the apostle Peter. We read about his overconfidence and his fall in Matthew chapter 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You'll all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Notice, Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Now notice the arrogance of Peter as he claims that he's spiritually superior to the other apostles. Yes, they may fall away, Lord, but not me. Even though Jesus said this, Jesus said all of you will fall away. He had the audacity to disagree with the Lord by telling him that he's the exception. He's the exception to the rule. He'll never abandon him. He'll never fall away. If need be, he'll die with him, but he will never, ever deny him. Well, we know how that turned out. Just as the Lord predicted, Peter did deny him three times. But it was inevitable that Peter would fall because in his sinful pride, he thought he was stronger than he really was. 
certainly stronger than his apostolic peers. So when temptation did hit, Peter wasn't prepared and he fell hard. John MacArthur is a good warning to all Christians about the danger of thinking that we're just too strong to fall into sin. MacArthur writes, Christians who become self-confident become less dependent on God's word and God's spirit and become careless in their living. As carelessness increases, openness to temptation increases and resistance to sin decreases. When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest, our doctrine the soundest, and our morals the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent on the Lord. So folks, take heed. Guard your heart. Don't you for one moment think that you're just too strong to fall into, give way to temptation. Too strong to sin Too strong to fall into the most wicked of sins. Other people may do that, but not you. You're not strong enough. You can't withstand this on your own. Now at this point, you may be thinking, as I'm sure the Corinthians were thinking, knowing my struggles with pride and overconfidence, how can I possibly handle temptation when it comes? How can I possibly keep from falling into sin? You're right, I'm not that strong. And Paul, who wasn't only a brilliant theologian, but also a kind shepherd and pastor. Paul has some pastoral encouragement to offer any believer who thinks that falling into sin is just inevitable, that he or she is just, yeah, you're right, just can't handle it. He offers this great word of hope in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now the first thing Paul does is he very graciously assures us that whatever temptation we face, and understand temptation is not sin. Temptation is a solicitation to sin. It's not sin in and of itself. If you give in to the temptation, then you've sinned. Paul assures us that whatever temptation we face, whether it's the temptation to engage in sexual immorality or the temptation to be lifted up with pride or the temptation to make something or someone an idol in our lives or the temptation to grumble and complain, whatever it is, that temptation is not unique to us. Others have faced it because Paul says that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you need never worry that you are going to face a temptation that no one else has ever faced in this world. There's no temptation that you have ever had that somebody else hasn't had. Been faced by millions of believers. The same things as one person I read, put it, they said, circumstances differ, but basic temptations do not. We are all in the same boat. So whatever temptation you have faced or are facing, you're not alone. We've all been there. It's a fact that we all face similar temptations, which, as I said, by definition, temptations aren't sins. They're solicitations from Satan to sin. 
But while we don't have to sin, no one can avoid temptation. You can't avoid it because that's just the reality of the Christian life. However, what encourages us is to know that while we cannot avoid temptation, we don't have to give in to temptation, meaning we don't have to sin regardless of what that temptation might be. And the reason for this is spelled out by Paul when he goes on to say, and God is faithful. What a remarkable promise this is. Our God is faithful. What does Paul mean by this? Well, when Paul says that God is faithful, he means that he's true to his word to help us, to rescue us, to deliver us, so that we don't have to fall from temptation into sin. He'll help you. See, when you and I sin, it is because we choose to sin, not because we had to sin, as if we had no choice in the matter. We sin not because the devil has made us to sin. Nobody makes you sin. Satan certainly doesn't make us sin. We sin because that's what we want to do. But you never have to sin when you're tempted. You don't have to. Because God promises to be faithful by helping you say no to that particular temptation. And how does he demonstrate? How does he show his faithfulness when you're being tempted? Well, he demonstrates his faithfulness, Paul says, by the fact that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. What does that mean? It means that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond the point of your capacity to handle that temptation. He'll never put you in a tempting situation without giving you the strength to resist that temptation. He'll always be there to help you. He'll always be there to rescue you. He'll always be there to deliver you. This is the promise of his faithfulness. And the way he helps us is spelled out by Paul in the final words of verse 13. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now Paul says that when we are tempted, God will provide the way of escape so that we can endure this temptation, meaning that we can resist it. But listen closely, because it's very easy to misunderstand the apostles' words. You see, Paul isn't saying that you can escape from being tempted. You can't. He's not saying you can escape this temptation so that you don't have to face this temptation. No, you do have to face the temptation. He means that the way to escape a temptation is by going through it and prevailing so that you'll be able to endure the temptation without falling into sin. And how specifically does God help us prevail and endure all kinds of temptations? He helps us by providing everything that you and I need to endure. Like what? Well, the spiritual armor, for example, mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. If you're not sure about those, go back and study it. You can listen to those messages that were given here. You can listen online. We went over every piece of armor. But basically, what it comes down to, when you look at all the armor God has provided, it essentially comes down to the right thinking that comes from knowing biblical truth and then the right behavior that comes from applying biblical truth. You have to know the word. You have to apply the word. Listen, the way Jesus resisted temptation, it's very simple. 
He used the word of God. Every time Satan threw a temptation at Jesus, he said, it is written. He didn't engage the devil in arguments. He just referred to the authority of the word of God. That's how God helps us. He's already given you his word. You just have to learn his word to know how to apply each portion or that particular portion of scripture to the particular temptation that you face. We also endure by our praying. We are to pray with trust and confidence, knowing that God is sovereign and good and wise, and that whatever tempting situation he has allowed to come into your life, he's done this for a reason, for your own good, to make you more like Christ and for his own glory. So, Listen, the primary point, when all is said and done, the main point that Paul is making is that liberty issues are dangerous. They're dangerous because if you're not careful with a liberty issue, you can easily be overcome by temptation and fall into sin. But you don't have to because God is there to strengthen you and to give you the grace to handle the temptation so that you can bear it without giving into it. So be careful. Learn from the sinful failures of others. Don't be careless with liberty issues by letting yourself be lifted up with pride as if you could never fall. And take courage. Take courage because when temptation comes and you're being solicited by the evil one to do evil, to sin, know that you don't have to give in to it. God will help you as you apply his word to whatever you are facing. Let's pray to our wonderful Lord who promises to be faithful to us. Lord, we are grateful. We are grateful for this passage of Scripture. It's so easy to overlook this. And yet, liberty issues are something that we face all the time. Lord, I pray for each one in our congregation to be very careful about the things that we do that in and of themselves are very permissible, certainly allowed by you, But if we're not careful, we can become careless, overconfident, proud. So I pray that you'll bring to our minds those things that are dangerous for us. But also, Lord, help us to lean upon you. To never never think that these things could never happen to us because we know too much of the Bible. We've walked too many years with you. We go to a good church. We know about fellowship. We know about doctrine. We know how battles go. Lord, help us. Help us to be totally dependent upon you. And then when temptations come, Lord, help us to remember these truths that we don't don't have to do what a temptation is soliciting us to do. You're faithful. You'll give us the grace to endure. Help us to know the word. Help us to be in prayer. Help us to walk in fellowship with you and to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, And use it properly when these temptations come. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us in every difficult situation in life. And we thank you that in the midst of this warning, you give us great hope and confidence. Confidence in you, not in ourselves. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.